and I'm excited uh, for it this morning. If you maybe you remember, hopefully you remember. Uh, for some, you have to think a little bit longer. For others, not so much. But do you remember when life was so simple as a kid? Life was just so simple, and you were so innocent, and at the same time so ignorant, and you just enjoyed life. A couple weeks ago, I was. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, on a phone call, and I get a lot of phone calls uh, as a pastor. And I was on the phone call, just talking with somebody, and just heavy. They've just been going through a really lo- rough time. And as a young pastor, only 30, trying to give some, some advice and just trying to support and trying to love. And I just remember I was driving home, and we were on a phone call, and just, just feeling heavy. And uh, I hung up the phone, and I was just sitting in my driveway, and just kind of uh, nothing really affected me. I wasn't going through what they were going through, but I was just kind of heavy for them. And I go into my house, and uh, I sit down, uh, and you can just tell it's one of those days where you can tell you've just had a long day. You ever had that? And just, uh, I'm a pretty uh, happy-going, easy-going person. I like to think so, at least. And my wife will say I'm a little stubborn, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of that way. And so uh, usually things don't affect me, but I was just heavy for this person. And sure enough, Aislinn, my almost three-year-old, comes up to me, and she sits on my lap, and she puts her uh, nose on mine, and she says, Daddy, you want to go swimming, right? And we, have, we, have, we just got this new pool that, that one of you gave us, so thank you. And, um, and so I was like, no, I don't feel like swimming right now. And so she, you know, thought for a minute and sticks her nose back on mine, and she goes, Daddy, you want to play with me? Like, no. And, and in that moment, I thought, oh, to be a kid again, right? If we could only be a kid again, how much easier a life would be. And later that night, we were putting Ace to bed, and I got into this process of asking Ace Lynn, what was your favorite thing that you, you did today? And over the course of asking that question, we kind of got on this, would you rather? Have you ever played that with your kids or even just with friends? Would you rather? Which is better, right? Which, what would you rather do? And so I was like, uh, Ace, would you rather live in our old house in Pittsburgh or our new house? She's like, our new house. And I said, Ace, would you rather go to Nana's house and swim later or would you rather go to the zoo, right? And so I won't tell you what she said because my mom is here, uh, but she said the zoo. Um, I said, do you like Coco Melon or Peppa Pig? She's like, I like Peppa the Pig. I like, do you like mom or do you like dad? I'm just kidding. I didn't ask that. But we've gotten this thought. So I have that for you. I have a game for you today. I did youth ministry for 10 years. And so I have a game. So it's up on the screen of Would You Rather. And so the first one is Would You Rather Laugh or Would You Rather Cry? Think about it. Maybe, maybe talk to a, uh, your neighbor. Uh, would you rather laugh or cry? I don't know about you, but I don't like to cry. I cry a lot. If you cry, I cry. That's the mindset I'm in. But I don't like to cry. And so I would rather laugh. Would you rather attend a birthday party or a funeral? Right? Pretty, pretty obvious. You'd probably rather. I would rather attend a birthday party than a funeral 10 times out of 10. Um, would you rather receive a compliment or receive a criticism? Mm. I would much rather somebody come up to me and, and tell me, hey, that, was, that sermon was a blessing to me, than tell me, hey, we're leaving the church after that one, right? I would much rather that. Compliments, not criticisms. Would you rather have it now or would you rather patiently wait? Well, we live in a society that would rather have it now. Um, you know, chapter 7 will teach us, uh, Solomon will begin to unpack, the writer will begin to unpack a couple better statements that I want to look at. And really, some have called these wisdom statements, and these are uh, simply, these are not promises, these are simply principles. 
this section of Ecclesiastes is going to sound very proverb fill to it, and so we're kind of going to go a diff- couple different directions today, and because uh, these are they're, these are very much so principles that we can uh, follow and that we can take and, and that we can kind of just consider. And what we'll find is that better is simply not what we expect. Better is simply oftentimes not what we would expect. And this word better is going to be used eight times in the verses that we will read. It's going to show us about seven phrases that we'll look at. And so to, this morning I only, really only have one point, but I have seven subpoints. Okay, and we're going to look at all these better phrases that Solomon gives and see uh, just the heaviness that he feels. And he'll essentially show us that, hey, life is better when you live life as God designed it to be lived. Life is better when you uh, submit and you trust God because better isn't always in what you would expect better to be. And so he's going to unpack this thought of wisdom again. He's going to show us that uh, godly wisdom goes further. That's what he's going to essentially show us. And remember in chapter 1, we looked at it a long time ago. We looked at chapter 1 and Solomon says that earthly wisdom doesn't cut it. In fact, earthly wisdom brings much grief and much sorrow. And in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's going to look and unpack wisdom again. And he's going to essentially find that, that there is benefit to wisdom and godly wisdom will actually go further and actually go longer and do a lot more for us. This word wisdom is used over 14 times in these two chapters. And this, this type of wisdom is to uh, get out of the present state of mind and look further. Get out, of the, get, out, get out of the mindset of what's taking place in your life now, but, but try to see and trust God through the big picture, through, through the extent of all things that God is doing. Let's learn to, to trust him. And so uh, we'll see that this morning. We found that God's in control. We found already that God is sovereign. We found already that God is all-powerful. And we'll also find this morning that God has uh, designed life to be lived a certain way. And we, in fact, have broken that. Sin has broken the way that God has designed life to be lived. And so better does not always feel better because what feels better is, is to the, the enjoyment and the satisfaction of flesh. And so God has inserted Jesus in the redemption plan to restore what man has broken. And so we're going to turn and look at a principle of living the life the way that God has designed it. And so let's pray and then we'll dive in this morning. Lord, I thank you for this, this day. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for the many, many people here that, that have chosen. There's a choice to be here. And Lord, I pray that you'll encourage. I pray that you'll uh, help. I pray that you'll convict. And Lord, uh, even be with those who are traveling. Received a couple texts today of people uh, not able to be here and just uh, wanting to and just say, hey, we love, we love Village. And so we're, we're thrilled at what you've done here. We're thrilled at what you're doing here. And we're thrilled that, that you still speak and you still want to move and that you would want to move in us. Lord, the, the, the humility to, to desire to have relation with me. And Lord, as we look at a few wisdom statements, or may we see the principles that, hey, life isn't always what we want it to be, but we can trust you. And may we do that today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's look at verse 1. Consider God's design for better. It says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. It says the day of death, uh, the, day of, uh, the day of death is better, I just added that in there, than the day of one's birth. 
better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Now, if you're reading like I'm reading, I'm, I'm thinking, Solomon, this does not sound like better. This sounds like, like maybe the first part, cool, that was a nice one, a good name, better than precious ointment. Uh, that, that one's good, but everything else, this, this looks like worse. This looks like a suffering life that does not look like a, a beneficial life to be lived. This doesn't make sense in my uh, contrite mind. This doesn't make sense in, in my mindset in the way that uh, culture and society has shaped our mindset to be. But remember, these aren't promises. These are simply principles that we can reflect on. And so he says, hey, this is it. And what Solomon is indicating is better is not what we would indicate better to be. And so he's going to go down and he's going to list seven statements, seven phrases where he uses, eight phrases where he says better, but seven phrases kind of where he points to a picture, a perspective, a principle for us to uh, think about and dwell on. And so I want to focus on those today. The first one is this, a good name Better is a good reputation. That's what he says. Better is a good reputation. He says it this way. A good name is better than precious ointment. This is true. Right? This is true in our life. You would rather have things spoken good of you than negative to you. Right? You would just rather walk into a room and people say, oh, so glad to see you, than walk into a room and people want to leave. That's that's natural. That's natural man. He's saying, hey, this is a a good thing. But I love the wordplay of the writer here because the word name in Hebrew is the word shem. And the word ointment is the Hebrew word shemen. And what it's saying, that that ointment uh, leaves a scent for a while, but your reputation can long uh, surpass you. The the way that you live, the reputation that you have can long uh, go after and remain after the grave. Like your reputation has value. Your name goes further than even ointment. Ointment in this day was, was a rich thing. It was a treasured possession. This isn't just like go to Walmart and there's like a $5 cologne and $10 cologne and $400. This isn't like that. This was a precious tool. No matter what type of ointment you had, it was precious in those days. And so this mindset, this is, this is a big deal. Like, my, like this would uh, take some significant sacrifice in this mindset. This is better. My name has more value here. I spent my year's wage on this. What are you talking about? But he says, hey, your name goes further, faster, dwell on it. An ointment leaves a scent for a day, but your reputation long surpasses the grave. People remember this. And so a uh, godly name is better than precious ointment. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1 will give a different perspective of this thought whenever it says dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom. And so uh, what's it saying? Hey, if you live a life uh, in pursuit of yourself, if you live a life for greed and sin, that'll long overshadow and the stench will even overshadow the wisdom in which you had. And so a good name is rather to be Chosen, Proverbs says it. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. What's it saying? Your reputation leaves a mark. My wife and I, when we moved here, we bought a house, and uh, we called it the smokehouse. I'm not sure if I was supposed to say that, but uh, essentially in this market, we did, a, we did a, a thing that we never thought we would do, and there was a deal on a house, and so we bought a house that somebody had smoked in, and so for the past 
two months. We've just been cleaning and gutting and, and, and cleansing and uh, doing what, no, I'm just kidding, but doing all kinds of stuff just to try to get the smoke out. Why? Because uh, we didn't want that smell. Maybe that's a smell you enjoy. We would prefer a different fragrance. And so we've spent a long time, and I remember when we walked in, uh, you know, you see the nice pictures of the, of the house on Zillow, and, and so we walk in, we knew it was a little bit of a fixer-upper, and you walk in, it's like, whoa, uh, this guy uh, smoked. Uh, that's what he did, and kind of left that re- remark and left that fragrance, and so we spent time because we preferred a different type of fragrance. What's he saying? Your life leaves a mark on the places you go and the people you interact with, and, and that's, a, that's a principle to be applied. That should be long considered. Because our reputation surpasses us. And that's not, uh, and so we should dwell on it. And it's not something to say, hey, I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave an impact. I want people to remember my name. No, Solomon already spoke to that fact. And he's going to come up short because he's going to be long forgotten. And, and his memory will fade eventually. But our reputation leaves a mark. And so the, I guess you could uh, kind of ask yourself, is your life leaving a, a uh, what fragrance is your life leaving? That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 5.13, you're the salt of the earth, right? You're the salt of the earth. You have a job as a follower of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, then how shall the saltness be restored? Because it matters, because your name goes further, your, your, your reputation. And so what's God's design? It's a reputation that points people to Jesus. That's his design for us. The second principle is this, better is the end than the beginning, is a little heavy because he says it this way, the day of death and the day of one's birth. Now Solomon's not saying, hey, it's better to die than it is to be born. That's not what, he, that's not what he's saying, but he's contrasting two major life events, right? He's saying uh, the, the day you receive your name and the day that your name shows up in the obituary. He's contrasting the two events and the life that's lived in between those days will be uh, what, what causes your life to live, leave a loving fragrance or a terrible stench. The life in between these two events and these two moments. Someone once said you receive three names in your life. The name your parents give you, the name your friends call you, and the name that you acquire for yourself. And so often that's the name that stays with you. I was taking some time this week as I was studying and thinking about the names that I've received over the years Maybe you can too, just for a moment. I have my name, Travis Leroy Burkett. If you didn't know that, that's what it is. Travis, no clue where it came from. Leroy, Burk, uh, Leroy is my dad's name. Burkett's my family name. That, that's my name. There's no change. I mean, I could change that, but that, that's my name. I thought of some nicknames, and I'll give you one nickname that I received over the years. And it was T-Bone, T-Travis, Bone, because I used to be this little skinny uh, kid in elementary, this little scrawny kid, and so people would call me T-Bone. And to this day, I can go, and I can be in uh, Olive Garden or something, and a kid from uh, a friend's dad from elementary school will see me, and I'm like, hey, Bone. I'm like, you can't call me that anymore. I'm a 30-year-old man with, with kids. It just doesn't make sense, right? But that's, that's just a name. And then there's names that you've acquired over the years, right? I, th- I thought about uh, that this week and just the names that people remember you for. I remember whenever I was a junior in college and I was studying to be in ministry and uh, I was really, at that point in my life, really striving to do right and follow God and really submit my life to God. I was dating my wife, about to be engaged. And I remember I went home for Christmas. And I went home for Christmas. And all anybody else ever wanted to talk to me about in high school and, and in college was, was, was basketball. It was a sport that I played. And I remember thinking at that moment, I used to love it. But at that moment, I was like, 
why, isn't it, why doesn't anyone want to talk to me about ministry? Why doesn't anyone want to talk to me about my girlfriend? Why doesn't anybody want to talk to me about uh, other things that, that I'm striving to do one day? All people want to talk to me about. And I remember asking that question to myself. But the reality is it, it, they were talking about what consumed my life. Right? They, they were talking about what I set my focus to because that's the name that I've acquired. And so often that's the name that will be remembered. Uh, and so the Bible says, hey, hey, we should, we should take this into consideration. The life that we live in between, when we receive our name and when it shows up to, uh, in the obituary, that should be a life worth living. That should be a life that, that doesn't reflect me and my values but reflects Christ. He's given us a principle to follow. Proverbs 10 says it this way, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. So the principle is this, consider the name that you're leaving behind. What name are you leaving behind? What name? Not, not, so, not to make you feel good, not to leave a legacy, but, but are you pointing people to Jesus? Because the best name that you can leave behind you is the name of Jesus. And so maybe instead of considering the name, you should ask yourself, is your name, is your reputation leaving a mark for the cause of Christ? Is it leaving a mark for Jesus? Your name. He's talking about the two points in between. I think of a few people in the Bible. You think of Mary of Bethany. Talk about ointment. She broke the year's worth of ointment and started anointing Jesus' feet. Right? And the Bible says that the fragrance filled the whole house. The whole house. And, gotta, and, and Judas quickly comes. And I got to imagine Judas may not be right then and there, but maybe he smells the fragrance. And Judas was kind of money hungry. And so he smells the rich ointment. He runs over. Like, what are you doing? Right? Well, this is a year's wage. You're a fool. What are you doing? And Jesus quickly stops him and speaks good of her. As the fragrance filled a house, and we still talk about that today, but then you flip the script and you think of Judas, right? The man who sold Jesus into the hand of the enemy in Mark 14. Judas, given the name Judah, which means praise from the royal tribe of Israel. But when Judas died, you thought nothing of his name, but what'd you think of shame? Because better is not in your name, but better is in the life that you live. Better is in the, the, the focus that you have better is in the fragrance that it leaves. And so he says, compare the two. What's God's design? Uh, live your life that points out this is Jesus. He reflects it over and over again. And in the between, it's not about you, it's about him. The third thing is this. Better is mourning. Better is mourning than feasting. Verse 2 says it this way. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Better is mourning than the house of feasting. Solomon says it's not only important to be remembered for the right thing, but it's important to also be reflective. We should live a life to reflect. And uh, he knew the tendency. He had it too. He oftentimes neglected the reality of death because he lived his life to consume more things. And when death hit him, he, he was frustrated with what he, what he lived for because he wanted to ignore it. And so often we have that tendency too. And so the Bible's not telling us to, uh, the Bible is not telling us to be preoccupied with death and get weird about it, but the Bible's telling us to be serious about the life that we live, to, to be reflective. He's not telling us to enjoy and not, he's not telling us not to enjoy life. He's already told us eight times in Ecclesiastes to actually enjoy life, 
to eat, drink, and be merry. Life's a gift from God that should be enjoyed. But he said, hey, we should be reflective in these moments. And there's a principle that when we dwell in the house of mourning, life can be lived more soberly. Maybe if you've experienced death in your family or close relative, what, what happens? Life kind of gets reevaluated. Priorities kind of get straightened, right? If you've had a child and that, uh, you've been so frustrated with that child and that child will fall down in the next moment and get hurt, the frustration leaves and the care kicks in because you realize what you're frustrated in doesn't actually matter that much because it's fleshly, but what matters is if they're actually okay. Priorities get straightened when you go into the house of mourning. That's what he says, and he'll continue that thought whenever uh, here in the next thing. And this is why the Bible teaches us in Psalm 90, verse, verse 12, when it says, teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And he'll continue this with a fourth principle. He kind of tags it on. He says, sorrow is better. Sorrow strengthens more than laughter. Sorrow actually strengthens more than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. And by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. We said it in one of the better statements that we, the game, little game that I played with you, right? What would you rather do, birthday party or funeral? Birthday party, hands down. Why? Because funerals make you evaluate death. Every funeral makes you anticipate your own. And I don't like to anticipate my own, right? It's just, it's just heavy. Solomon says that, that sorrow can, can do more good for the heart than even laughter. And this is the same guy by, by means that says a lot of good things about laughter, right? Proverbs is full of them. Proverbs 15 says a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Verse 15 of Proverbs 15 says it this way. All the days of the, of the afflicted are evil, but a cheerful heart is a continual feast. Proverbs 17, 22. The joyful heart is a good medicine. And laughter can be a medicine that, that restores the heart, but sorrow can be the nourishment that, that heals it. That, 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 that fills it, that, that, that strengthens the heart. And we need it. Solomon's not saying one's better than the other. He's saying you need the balance of both. You can't just live your life lighthearted and expect uh, you to be who God has called you to be. You, you, need, you need both. There are seasons when, when you need to be strengthened, and there are seasons where there's heartache in our lives, and it's just an opportunity to be strengthened by God. It's just an opportunity to turn and to submit and to trust God more and more. That's why he says in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to do everything under the sun. This time of year, you can't help but think of the independence of our nation and, and the vision and the future and what it took to actually do that and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. You can't help but think about the vision and the effort and the heart and even the, the gratitude and the, and the excitement as they, those 56 men penned those words. But for some, it would quickly fade. Right? If, if, you, if you look up and you know about them, we find that soon after, five of those would be captured by the British and tortured before they died. Two of them would have their sons captured. Uh, Twelve of them would have their homes actually burnt to the ground. Two of them would uh, go on and have their sons killed in war. Nine of them would die in war themselves. And although there was excitement and, and, and hey, this is a new thing, we've done it. There was, it was quickly turned to sorrow, but we see through all that there's purpose. And, and we were strengthened because of it. 
As a pastor, I have the privilege to go, and uh, even in student ministry, some to go to, to homes where people are about to uh, have a loved one pass or a loved one soon pass. And you see this truth applied in this principle when, when, you, when you go to the house of mourning. Because I've been there when uh, non, non-believers ha- have had loved ones pass and believers, and there's always strength when you know Christ and you go through that sorrow. You find strength. And it makes you hurt for the ones who don't know Christ and don't have that peace and don't have that hope. Because this, this principle is true. There is strength when you go to the house of mourning. Sorrow can strengthen you. Uh, was there hurt? Yeah. Would we want something else if we could choose? Yeah, not a chance we'd choose that. But was there strength through it? Yeah, why? Because Christ was magnified uh, because they found strength through the only one who can supply strength Jesus, and this principle is true. And so what's God's design here? A balance of enjoying life, but not being afraid to go to the house of sorrow because there you can truly find strength. And every bad thing that happens in our life isn't because God is against us, but it's simply an opportunity to turn our focus and say, God, I trust you. God, I cling to you because you're the only one who I can find strength in these moments. And the fifth thing is this, rebuke is better than flattery. It says it this way, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is laughter of the fool, this is vanity. What's he say? Rebuke from the godly is better than the praise of the ungodly. And he he uses the comparison of the, the Praise of fools is like the the thorns in in a campfire. Now, I'm not a big campfire guy, but uh, if you throw a bunch of thorns in the campfire, you hear a lot of crackling, a lot of sparks, but it just doesn't last long. It doesn't doesn't do very much for you, right? It's not going to actually benefit you. What's he meaning? If you allow it, the rebuke of the godly can can cause more good and and point you more towards the purpose that God has for you than than staying with the fools of the folly, than staying over here and just just having people in your corner that just uh, let you do what you want to do in life. No, you need the loving rebuke in your life. That's what he's saying. There's a principle there. And this is something that Solomon lived firsthand. Because you remember early on in his leadership, we've already said it a few weeks ago, when, when, when Solomon takes reign, he goes and he seeks counsel of his father. And what happens? He rejects it. And he goes to his peers and he accepts their counsel. And this is something that Solomon has lived. And, and really the destruction of Israel that will be to come is because Solomon failed this principle. He failed to be accountable and rather go to the, the, to the flatter of fools than the rebuke of the wise. And so he fails in this area and this is something that he lives and we can tell all throughout Proverbs, this is something that, that God takes seriously and, and Solomon took seriously. And Solomon lives his life dwelling on this reality for a little bit. I have some verses up here that, that we see throughout, this, throughout Proverbs. He says it this way in verse 10, in chapter 10 and verse 17. Whosoever heeds the instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects leads others astray. That sounds a whole lot like Solomon. The whole reason Israel leads to destruction and Rehoboam loses the kingdom was because it was promised to be lost because of Solomon, right? And so Solomon, I'm not going to take it from you, but I'm going to take it from your son is what the Bible says in, in, first, King, in sec, first or Second Kings. That's what, it, that's what it says. Solomon lived this. Chapter 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. 
Chapter 15, verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, and whoever heeds reproof is prudent. That sounds like Solomon. David, man after God's own heart, doesn't, uh, doesn't heed to it, and so he is struggling. Rebuke goes deeper into a man than understanding than a hundred blows into the fool. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to the listening ear. Chapter 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another, right? It continues, he says, chapter 29, verse 1, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Sounds a whole lot like Solomon, and the life that Solomon lived. Chapter 29, verse 15, The rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. There's benefit. The principle is there's benefit in godly reproof. Psalm 141 says it this way, Let the righteous man strike me. Because it's actually a kindness when the righteous man strikes me is what it says. Let him rebuke me. Is it the oil for my head? Let my head not refuse it. And the Bible tells us over and over again that it's a good thing to have people in our life that push us closer to being who God wants us to be. And it's not the easy thing, but it's a benefit to us. It is better for us. The principle is there. And the New Testament speaks to this as well. James 5, confess your faults one to another, right? Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man uh, has great power as it is working. It's a benefit to us. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, therefore encourage one another, build one another up. And I love Luke 17.3 because it says this, pay attention to yourselves. If a man sins, rebuke him. If a believer sins, rebuke him. But if he repents, forgive him. There's a principle that, hey, it's a good thing to help people draw closer to Jesus. And they, well, you say, what's well, the key? Do I just need to go and thus say the Lord, stand on the street? If Brett is, is doing something wrong, then we can just tackle him and take him out and lock him in a closet until he does right? No, no, no. The key is Ephesians. Read the book of Ephesians. The Bible will say this in Ephesians 14, or in, in Ephesians 4.15. He says this, here, here's what you do. Rather, this is, this is a step, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way unto him. So when we speak truth and love, we grow up in every way and, and we draw closer to Christ. It says this, uh, unto him who is the head unto Christ. So how do you do that? Why? why? Well, why is repro- reproof and rebuke uh, more important than the flattery of fools. Well, the next verse, Ephesians 4, verse 16, tells us why this is valuable to the life of the church. Because it says this, For whom the whole body is joined together and held together by every joint. Uh, we're all together in the body of Christ. Every joint uh, is being, which is equipped. Well, why? When each part is working properly, the body grows. When each part is doing what God has called it to do, when each part is striving to grow closer to the Lord, when each part is striving to be a person following and actively following God, the body grows and it concludes with this and it builds itself up in love. That, that, when, that when I follow God and when you follow God, the body of Christ grows. Jointly, hip to hip, hand to hand, we can go through life and we can truly be who God has called us to be. And we can love, we can support, we can rebuke, we can help, truth and love. Because uh, Why? Because we're striving to be who God has called us to be. Because the reality is if I'm not 
living and doing what God has called me to do, you suffer. But flip the script, if you're not doing what God has called you to do and be who God has called you to be, I suffer. Because Ephesians say the body of the Christ is best when it's equipped, fully grown, joints together. And, and, when, it's, and when it's growing, the, when it works properly, well, how does it work properly? When, it, when you do what it's supposed to do, right? When we grow together, we need each other. A few years ago, I was in a student ministries in Pittsburgh, and we had an internship program. And I was in student ministries, and so a lot of times the interns got shipped over to student ministries, and sometimes I loved it. This year, I hated it. I hired an easy hire is what I did, which I'm always against easy hires now. And I hired this guy who already had some living arrangements, so we hired him and for the summer. And I hated it because we were complete opposites. And I'm an easygoing person. I can get along with just about anybody except for this guy. And so uh, we just butted heads. And I, the things that I was over, I just had a certain way and certain expectations that, that the years passed. I needed to make them better. And so I'm trying to hand this off, but I really don't want to because he doesn't work the way that I work, right? And so, so it's hard for me to hand things off to people sometimes. And we got to the point about halfway through the summer, I was just, I was excited, honestly, for this kid to fail. Like, I was just shaking my hand. I was laughing at him. We were in staff meetings. Me and my, uh, the music guy, we were just making fun of him the whole time. And we were grown men doing this. Uh, and we were just, I got to this point where I just wanted the summer to be over. And instead of trying to help him and guide him and mentor him, I just tried to avoid him, right? I just tried to take a bunch of vacation days and just try to not be around this guy. And it got to the point where, where I was just wanting him to fail. So instead of guiding and helping him. And it's almost as if God said to me, Travis, you're, you're a leader of the church. And you're saying you're trying to build the church, but the church will not build because you live your life divided. Because you're divided with the body of Christ. And it took me to the end of the summer to realize that. But there's a principle here that Ecclesiastes is showing us that, that we need each other. The principle is we need people in our corner to help us and guide us and shape us into who God wants us to be. But we need to allow other people to do that the same way to us. Because when the body fitly is fixed together and the body can be strengthened as we all pursue to follow Jesus more and more. Because uh, it's easier. And Solomon found this. It was easier to live his life for the flatter of fools. Fill your life with people who would worship you and revere you and fear you, but we see that that only took him further and further away from where God wanted him to be. And so often it can for us too. And so we need to look within, and we need to want these things to take place in our life. That's why small groups can be so good. That's why we need the church, and, and we should prioritize the church, because we need people to help us be who God has called us to be, but in turn, help the church be who God has called it to be, too. The last, or I have two more, actually. Uh, it says this, don't worry, these two are faster. What's God's design? A people of God lovingly helping the body of Christ reach its potential. The sixth thing is this, patience is better than hastening. Verse 8, the end of a thing is better than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. He says the long haul is better than the shortcut. And actually the identification of a fool is if you're quick to anger and rash to judgment and you're impatient. Impatient. What's well, God's design? A people of patience. And this is a major struggle for Solomon because he's the guy who had it all, right? I want it, cup bear, cup, got it, 
army, God, everything. But it's a struggle for us too. Right? We live in a, nature, uh, in a nation that, that we want things now, Amazon Prime, Instapots, supersonic speed internets, right? Does that even take five seconds to load something? You're like, throw it away. It's old. Where's the update? <laughs> and I love all those things, but so often that mindset can bleed into church, and so often that mindset can bleed into our relationship with God and even our relationship with others. And so uh, we get so impatient. It's like, God, I prayed like four times. You're not answering, and so I'm just going to do it, okay? I'll just do it myself, and church isn't, man, there's too much rebuke there. I'm just going to go, flatter of fools. That's kind of my thing. I just kind of do life without God because I just take it into my hands because we're, we're, we're not patient. He says, what's God's design of people of, of patience? I think of 1 Samuel and the story of Samuel with, with Eli. Happened long before Samuel was even in existence. Hannah, his mom, right, prayed, God, I want a son. If you bless me with a son, I'll give him back. God bless. Samuel comes, three-ish years old. She dedicates him to the temple to work under the influence of Eli. And his job was the, the, to keep the lamp lit, right? Eli wasn't the best of guys. Actually, his sons were pretty corrupt. There was a bunch of wickedness. But we see evidences of the character in which Samuel lived, that he was patient and he was faithful. And in 1 Samuel 3, God speaks to Samuel. And what we find is that Samuel, what Samuel was doing in the temple in 1 Samuel 3 wasn't where God wanted him to be long term. But he was faithful and patient in the season in which God had him in. So when God showed up, he was ready to move. Why? Because he was patient. He was obedient to where God had him, and we need to be a people of patience. That's the principle. And the last thing is this, today is better than yesterday. It says this in verse 10, do not say, why are the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning them. Psalmist says the, the fool lives in a place of nostalgia, but a wise person looks on. A wise person looks ahead. Someone once said, yesterday's past and it cannot return. Uh, tomorrow's not promised, so make the most of today. Well, remember the past? Sure. Dwell in it? Psalmist says, not unless you want to live life like a fool. The principle to be applied. It makes me think of Numbers 14. When Israel gets freed from Egypt, what do they say in Numbers 14? It was better there, Right? They, they quite literally say this, it's better that we are a slave in Egypt than a corpse in this wilderness. God has simply answered their prayer. God has saved them from slavery and they live their life looking back instead of looking forward. And so often we do too. Right? Oh, I remember the good old days. Right? Oh, things were better back then. But the principle is, is this, don't say, why are the former days better than these? What well, are saying? Do you not trust that God's in control today? just as he was in control yesterday. And so often we as believers will live our lives looking back instead of live our lives looking forward. Like we forget God promises us all these things. Romans 1, God's promised salvation to the world, but then we live our lives like God can't save them, right? God says, hey, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. God says, God promises us comfort in trials in 2 Corinthians, but do we allow God to actually comfort us in trials? We try to take it into our own hands. He promises us to finish the work that he's begun in us in Philippians. But do we allow him to work in us to finish that work? He promises us uh, to uh, peace when we actively pray. 
but do we actively pray with expectations to God show, to show up and when he shows up, submission for what God gives because so often we live looking back instead of looking forward because the key to life, to living life as God's designed is saying, God, I trust you, God, I submit to you and God may better be whatever you say better is. God, I trust you. Verse 11, and we're done. Wisdom is good for inheritance, and it's profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is the defense, as money is the defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. It says wisdom is like a shelter for protection. It's a good thing for those who have it, and it gives even greater protection than money itself. And I don't know about you, but to me it paints a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews had an expectation of their Messiah, right? Rule and reign, conquer Rome. Jesus says, nah, I come to suffer so that you may live. I come to seek and to save that which is lost. I come to die so that you may know me and so that you may be restored. So often we think of this time of year in America too, and we say, oh, I wish it would have been let me ask you a question this morning. If our world was exactly what you would view as better, would you need God? If whatever better was for you, if your life was the best it could be, would you need God in it? You know, there's another promise in the Bible that the Bible says, hey, this world will wax worse and worse. And we can look back and say, man, I wish God was like he was back then. I wish God showed up like he did. But I look at the world and say, man, how much God could do right now if a people would only simply say, Lord, may I apply these principles and live pointing people to you? Because life's best lived as God has designed it to be. And so are you living life as God has designed? Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. And you can't live life as God designed because you don't know Christ. So let me ask you, have you confessed with your mouth and, and believed in your heart that Jesus is in fact Lord and, and taken what Christ has done on the cross and as he's offered new life in him, do you know him? Has there been a time when, when you've believed? And if there is, are you living looking back or do you live looking forward because life's better when it's lived as God purposed it to be lived. I want to take just a moment and turn to a spirit of prayer and we're going to take communion in just a moment. If you don't have a cup, you can go grab a cup if you'd like. Our motto here is, hey, if you know Jesus, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of our church. If you know Christ, you have a relationship with him, then this is, this is for you to have and for you to take. But I just want to take a couple moments and reflect. First Corinthians will tell us not to do this with the wrong motives, not to do this with the wrong heart. And so I just want, as the music plays, I just want to take a couple moments and allow you to pray. Maybe you're good and you just need to spend some time thanking him for the blood and thanking him for his body. Maybe you need to spend some time reflective on saying, Lord, may you shape me. May better not be what I want, but may I trust that you're actually in control and be guided by you. Take just a moment.
If you're still praying, that's okay, but you can continue. Just as Jesus was about to be betrayed in the garden, he went up to the upper room with some of his closest followers, and he gave us a beautiful picture of what he was doing. Body broken, bloodshed, for you, for me. But we just, the whole purpose and why we're here. I think of a few things when I think of this passage before we partake. The first thing I think of is, he says it in Luke 22, 19, it's in remembrance of me. I love that God gives us a reason to remember. But also as I'm reflective, I think, why should we need it? <laughs> right? Why should we need to remember? Because he knew he'd forget. Because he knew he'd overlook it. Because he knew he'd take it for granted. And so he'd say, do this in remembrance of me. Hey, let's turn the table and make the focus back on me. How it should be. Every day of our lives. And so Jesus gives us bread, body broken, juice, bloodshed to remember him. The second thing I think about in this is he says, this is my body. The incarnation, God in flesh, came to be broken for you. How much you, but it gives me chills to consider that, that God would actually want to come. Not, not, not even just say, hey, here's a, here's a ticket into heaven, but to come be broken, to come suffer, to come die for you and for me. Well, what an amazing thing that it's his body. Not a, hey, army, go fight my war. It was his body. Broken so that you may have life. I don't know, but that just gives me chills. Not only that, but he says, drink it all in Matthew 26. He says, drink it, all of you. And it's an individual step to remember, but he gives it to the church as a body that we can partake and we can do in fellowship. And not only be reflective to make it about Jesus in our lives, but make it about Jesus in our church. And why we meet, why we worship, why we sing, why we have small groups, why we serve, why we give donuts on Saturday, why we have invitations, because it's about Jesus. And we can do it together. And the last thing that I see is he says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in 1 Corinthians 11. And that he says, hey, I've done it all. You just got to take and eat. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim my death until you come. Refocus. This is what it's about. It's not just taking the juice the first Sunday of the month and going and live our lives. But it's to transition our thoughts to, to say, Lord, may I proclaim you. Proclaim your death until I come. Lord, give me opportunity. Give me example what I want to live this out. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us an example to follow as we take this. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare to take the bread. He says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can partake. Lord, I thank you for your body. Lord, how amazing that you would come down, live among us, and not only just live among sin, but live perfectly. 
but not only just live perfectly and go back up to heaven, but be broken and die. Bloodshed, agony, suffer for me, that I may know you. And Lord, may I dwell on your, your, your body this week. Lord, thank you for your body broken. In Jesus' name I pray. First Corinthians will continue. He says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Can you imagine the moment? As he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. You can drink. We're going to pray and stand and sing after I pray. And I pray that we consider today and we take a step this week to proclaim but we also take a step this week to strive to live life as God has designed. Principles, not promises. But there is a promise of, of he will return. And may we live in that light. That Jesus is coming. And he's coming soon. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. And Lord, I pray. That as we go home, may we not dwell on even uh, the holiday, even the celebrations coming up, fireworks, festivities. Yeah, let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy life to the fullest for your glory. But may we focus on proclaiming you until you come. May we focus on dwelling in you and living in you and apply some principles that we've learned today, that we've studied and say, Lord, Help me live for whatever better means for you. If it means suffering, Lord, may I suffer to your glory. If it means joy, may I be joyful to your glory. If it means wealth, may I be wealthy for your glory. Or if it, may, it means hurt, may you get glory through it. Lord, may we live for you. May we dwell in you. May we sing for you in just a moment. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing.